Uh, most of my favorite songs are love songs. That's probably true for most of us because that's what most of popular music is. I think it's, it's been um, researched that 60 to 70% of all songs are written on the topic of love and relationships. But you've probably picked up on the fact that most love songs don't, don't paint exactly an accurate picture, a realistic picture of what love is. I thought about a few examples off the top of my head. My favorite band is the Eagles. The Eagles sang, I would die for you, climb the highest mountain. Baby, there's nothing I wouldn't do. Marvin Gaye, some years prior to that, said, ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from getting to you, babe. Uh, Brian Adams said, everything I do, I do it for you. Those are older examples, I realize. I had, I don't, I'm not a modern music kind of guy, so I had to Google modern music, and I found this quote from Bruno Mars, who said, I'd catch a grenade for you. <laughs> I think that's my favorite. Maybe there's a reason I don't listen to modern music. <laughs> my first question, though, is like, when do these scenarios actually happen? Do these things actually happen to people that they would sing songs about them? In almost 12 years of marriage, Jennifer and I have never found ourselves on opposite sides of Mount Everest, where I had to climb a mountain to get to her and prove my love for her, or catch a grenade for her. Now, I mean, I guess it could happen, but the, the scenarios are pretty uncommon, in my experience at least. And it's, it's funny to me also, if I, would, if I tried to say to my wife, oh, I'd climb the highest mountain just to prove that I love you. I, she'd really much rather me just unload the dishwasher, you know? <laughs> and it's funny, like, like love works that way, that love is something much easier said than done. We can boast all day long about how much we love somebody, but the truth is, day in and day out, it's much more difficult than, than just what we say, what we boast. Um, we discover that love is much more than just an emotion. See, love songs paint it in such an emotional way, and that's why we love them. But uh, it, love goes much deeper than our feelings. And see, that's true even just for people that we like. I mean, if you think about your spouse, your family, people that are close to you, in some sense it's easy to love them even though love is still difficult. What about loving people that we don't like? Loving people who are different than us, who disagree with us? who annoy us? What about loving our enemies, which we know the Bible calls us to do? Oh man, that love's not so easy. That love might feel in that case like climbing the highest mountain because it's not something that's really natural to us. Well, what the Apostle Peter is going to tell us today, he's going to call us to a sincere love. And it's specific, this love, specific to a love for the church. It's what Peter calls the brethren, okay? Our brothers and sisters in Christ. In, in, in our particular context, we're talking about the people that make up Harvest Church. And this, this little section of Scripture is not a how-to. Peter's not going to tell us what to do in order to be more loving. This is more of a, of a where-from kind of Scripture. In other words, Peter's going to tell us where this kind of love comes from, where it originates, what the foundation of it looks like. Um, and so this is not, what we're going to look at today is not the kind of love that's going to show up on the billboard charts. It's not an overly emotional or even romantic love. This is the kind of love that comes between brothers and sisters in Jesus, those who have faith in Christ as the church. And here's the difference. See, this kind of love um, may not feel quite as touchy-feely as a love song, right? But this kind of love actually has the power to change 
our community. It actually has the power to change the world, and we'll see why. So look at 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. What Craig just read for us. Peter says, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Right there in verse 22, at the end of that verse, is the key command of the whole passage. Peter says, by command, he says, fervently love one another from your hearts. But Peter doesn't start with the command. And we notice this, the command comes second. It's secondary. He starts actually with a statement of fact. Do you notice this at the beginning of verse 22? It's so important that we understand cause and effect here. Cause and effect. Peter starts by saying, since you, in obedience to the truth, have purified your souls. That right there, that little statement, is a statement of salvation. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. Honestly, I struggle a little bit with this kind of language sometimes in the Bible because I know that Peter's talking about your salvation, but he's talking about it in, in active terms, not passive. He's talking about obedience and purification and there's, I've always had this temptation to wonder, is Peter talking about earning your salvation? Obedience in order to be saved. Because if, if we're not careful, we could see it that way. But what Peter is doing, he's actually using the obedience to the truth and the purification of the soul to talk about the day that you became a Christian, the day that you placed your faith in Jesus. And really, that's not totally uncommon in the Bible. In the New Testament, there are several places where belief in Jesus is treated as synonymous with obedience to Jesus. Several examples. I'm going to just give you one of them that I think is very helpful. This is John chapter 3, verse 36. John the Baptist is talking to people about Jesus. And listen to this statement. John the Baptist said, He who believes in the Son, he who believes in Jesus, has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John treats belief in Jesus and obedience to Jesus as the same thing. They're synonymous for him. And so we see that uh, they have the same function at times in the Bible. So generally, I would say, listen, you don't, believe, you don't obey God in order to be saved. Salvation is a free gift. But there is a salvation that we receive from Jesus Christ that produces obedience to the truth. And I think that's why the the Bible sometimes treats them as the same idea. That's what's happening right here. Peter is basically saying, since you've been saved, okay? Since you have been saved and that salvation has changed your heart, it's changed your life. And that explains what comes next. Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. You see that? Peter says that your salvation is for or unto or accompanied by a sincere love of the church. He still hasn't given us the command yet. He's simply stating a fact that because you are a Christian, you therefore have a sincere love for God's church. There's an assumption here. Uh, Sometimes, especially in in American Christian culture, We talk about a personal relationship with Jesus, and the church isn't really a part of that necessarily. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Peter doesn't treat it that way here. He assumes that your salvation is coupled with, is accompanied by, a sincere love for the church. Now, that word sincere is important 
because it had two primary uses. I'm going to spend just a minute on this. Two primary uses in Peter's day. That word sincere. If you use the word sincere in Latin, it meant without wax. Literally, sincerity meant without wax. In the marketplace, you know, you didn't have... Uh, you couldn't go to Bed Bath and Beyond in the, in the New Testament, okay? You had a marketplace where people would make pottery and sell it, and that's how you got houseware. Well, kitchenware, right? And so you'd go and you'd buy a pot. Well, you know what happens if you've ever uh, made a pot or done something in pottery class, an ashtray or whatever, you know, a mug, something like that? It gets cracks in it, right? And when a pot, when a pot gets cracks in it, it's, it's very much less appealing. I'm not sure I want to buy something with cracks in it. I don't know if it has integrity. Well, the seller of the pot sees a crack in his pot, and he has an option here. He can either sell the pot as is and risk losing business, cracks and all, or he can put wax in the, in the blemished spots. He can cover the crack up and hide its appearance and then sell the pot, right, as if the pot was perfectly made. Well, the word sincerity, you see, it means without wax. It means that in the marketplace, I can trust the person who's selling this thing to me, that they have not tried to cover up its imperfections. It's the real and genuine article, right? Sincerity. In the Greek culture, that word sincere meant without a mask. Uh, it was used in the theater. In the theater, they would wear masks to play parts, actors. Jesus coined the term hypocrite talking about actors who when they put a mask on they become hypocrites they're playing a part that's not really who they are and sincerity to the greeks you could only be sincere when you dropped the mask and we could see who you really were you're no longer playing a part and so when peter says we have as christians a sincere love for the church he says you are without uh, hypocrisy. You're not trying to cover up your blemishes. You're without a mask. You're not trying to hide who you really are. Peter is saying, love each other without pretension. And then he says, uh, love each other fervently from the heart. Now here's the command, right? We've seen sincerity. Uh, John, let me, I, I was about to skip this and I don't want to. First John 3, 1 John 3 says, We know that we have passed out of death and into life. We've, we've been saved if we love the brethren. That's what John says. He who does not love abides in death. That's how important this issue is. Sincerity. Genuine love. Not just niceness. Not just plastic happiness. Genuine, sincere love, right? Well, then comes the command to love each other fervently from the heart. And that word fervent was used uh, of athletes who pushed themselves to the limits, who strained every muscle in their body in order to win the prize that was in front of them. And so when Peter says, fervently love one another from the heart, he's saying, I know you already love each other sincerely, but I'm now calling you to love each other in a way that stretches the limits, that pushes the limits of love, a love that makes you uncomfortable, perhaps, a love that's costly and that's difficult, that requires strain at times for us, push beyond the limits of love. That's the command here. Um, when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was eventually arrested and then crucified, Luke, the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus prayed so fervently that he began to sweat drops of blood. 
That's, what, that's, that's the connotation of fervent here. That's why Peter uses that word. That's how passionately he wants us to love one another. We would love each other so much so that at times it's really painful. And if you've ever loved somebody, you know that love can be very painful, right? Love each other that way, he says. One of the best pictures of this kind of love comes uh, from Jesus' very famous story, the story of the Good Samaritan. This is a story that many people know, even if they've never opened a Bible. The Good Samaritan. It's a story about a man who was walking, traveling between towns down a road. He gets overtaken by thieves, he's robbed, he's beaten, and he's left for dead. Well, two men come by, one after the other, religious leaders. One is a priest and one is a Levite, Jesus says, and neither of them stop. They walk to the other side of the road, in fact, to avoid this man in his distress, and they keep on going. Is it because they were bad people? Well, Jesus doesn't tell us that they were bad people, but clearly they had other things to do. Maybe they had more pressing matters as religious leaders. They had to get to church. They had to go and perform sacrifices, whatever it may be. Point being, though, they didn't love this man in his his need. But then comes a Samaritan. And in Jesus' time, Samaritans were looked down upon. They were a hated race of people. No Samaritan could ever be a hero of a story. And yet Jesus makes this man the hero. He says a Samaritan came by, not a religious leader. We're not even sure if he was religious at all. He comes by, he looks and sees this man beaten and bloody on the side of the road. And Jesus says he feels compassion for him. He stops and he takes of his own oil and his own wine And he treats this man's wounds, wine to disinfect, oil to soften. He takes care of him. He picks him up and he puts him on his own animal. And he carries him into town. He goes to an inn. And at the inn, he takes care of this man. And when he has to leave, he leaves the man in the care of the innkeeper with money and says, whatever it costs to take care of him, you do it. And if it costs you anything above this, you charge it to my account and I'll repay you when I return That is sincere and fervent love. And Jesus, when he tells that story, he's he's painting the picture of a man who is not constantly wondering, what am I going to get in return for this? What am I going to get back for this? Uh, Who saw me do this, and therefore my reputation will be uh, improved in the community? No, this is a man who simply loved out of his own cost, the stranger who's, who's unconscious on the side of the road, is this a good person? Did he, maybe he got what was coming to him. Maybe he's a criminal and he deserved what happened to him. The Samaritan doesn't know. He doesn't know what kind of man this is, but it's irrelevant to him. He cares for him uh, no matter what. He cares for him out of his own resources, out of his own time, out of his own convenience. He loves this man. Now, I don't know about you, But that kind of love is not easy for me. We're not talking about love for family, right? Any of us would sacrifice like that for our family, for our close friends, for somebody we like. But what about for a stranger? What about for somebody very different than us? What about somebody we don't know their past? Or we don't know that maybe they'll take take our, our help for granted, right? Maybe they'll never give a thank you. Maybe they'll never pay us back. This kind of love is difficult. It's costly. That's why Jesus tells the story, to show us what real love for neighbor looks like. And so in Peter's context, the question we have to wrestle with is, how sincerely and how fervently 
Am I loving my brothers and sisters in Christ? How are we doing as Harvest Church in this regard? Is our love sincere? Is it without a mask? Is our love fervent? Is it stretching my limits to love y'all? Is it uncomfortable, maybe even painful to love the people that I share the common bond of faith with? Those, those can be hard questions, right? Now, before we answer those questions, even just rhetorically in your own heart, before you give an answer to that, I want you to recognize that Peter's point, remember here, is not a how-to. He's not going to tell us what to do in order to be more loving. He wants to show us very simply where this kind of love comes from. If we are going to sincerely, fervently love each other, it's got to come from somewhere. And typically what I'll do is I'll just try to drum it up in my own effort. I'll grit my teeth. I'll try harder. Be more loving. Be more loving. Right? I don't know if you've ever tried to do that. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It's not effective. I'm trying to will something that, that my heart doesn't want. My heart only wants to love people who love me back. My heart only wants to love when it's easy and convenient. That's my sinful nature. Something's got to be done here beyond my will. And that's what Peter tells us next. Where does this kind of love come from? Look at verse 23. He says, for or because. Remember, fervently love one another from the heart. For, here's the reason, you have been born again. Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. We are commanded to love one another fervently from the heart. Why? Or where from? And Peter tells us, it's because you've been born again. It's because you've been saved. You've been born again of a seed which is imperishable. Peter is making a statement here about basic biology uh, we, all, we all learned this in middle school, okay? There's a seed that fertilizes an egg, and at the very basic level of biology, a human being comes forth, right? That's how all of us got here biologically, and that is a miracle. I mean, that's, a, that's an absolute wonder of nature. But Peter says that seed is perishable, and we know that to be true. Everything dies. Every person dies. No matter how miraculous life and conception is, it's temporary. By its very nature, it's here and then it's gone, right? It perishes. But to be a Christian is to be born again, to be born a second time. That's an idea that Jesus introduced to us in John chapter 3, to be born again, and Peter says, of a seed from a seed which is imperishable, which does not die, which cannot be diminished which cannot decay, it's something that is eternal, right? It's a new birth that never ends. It doesn't age, it doesn't get worn out. And that seed, Peter says, is the living and enduring word of God. That seed that has been planted in us, that has given us an imperishable life, is the word of God. Okay? Now, how does that make us more loving? It's a good question. And I want us to think about it like this. Uh, Peter makes the point of perishable and imperishable, right? He gives us the contrast. If this life, this life, if, it's, if this is all there is, meaning if everything is perishable, even the sun one day will cool down 
and life will no longer be uh, permitted on earth. Everything will die, okay? On a, from a, just a biological perspective, that's the truth. If everything is perishable, then what really motivates us to love people? Particularly people that we may not like or that may be very different from us. I mean, I know what motivates me to love my wife and my children, my friends, but what motivates me to love the stranger, the neighbor? If this life is all there is, what, what reason do we have not to be selfish and to only have our inner circle rather than loving those beyond it? Right? Where, where's our motivation? And I'm not talking about just being nice and cordial. I'm not talking about just pitying people who have it worse than us. I'm talking about a deep, enduring, sacrificing, life-giving kind of love, a love that's costly, a good Samaritan kind of love. What's our motivation if we live in a world that's just destined to perish and everything's going to go black and be forgotten? Is that kind of love, Peter's kind of love, possible in a world like that? Well, Langdon Gilkey thought so. Probably never, uh, you've never heard of Langdon Gilkey. He was born about 100 years ago in America to a very wealthy and very well-educated family. Uh, his, both of his parents were college professors, and he, of course, became a very high achiever uh, in their footsteps, so much so that Gilkey, when he was a young man in his early 20s, traveled to China to teach English at a university there. Um, he, was a, he was an incredibly gifted, talented young man. But he went to China to teach in the midst of World War II. And eventually, the Japanese forces overtook the area in which he lived, and they took him captive and put him in a prison camp. Uh, along with a lot of other American and European Westerners, anybody that they found that looked like him, they put them in this compound together. Okay? Now, <clears throat> Gilkey understood very clearly that what the Japanese were doing was wrong. He viewed them as evil, and, and that, was, that was not a, a, up for debate in his own mind. But that was not the thing that really troubled him about his experience. As he wrote about it later, the thing that really troubled him was his experience, not how the Japanese treated him, but how his own fellow prisoners treated him. See, Gilkey was under the impression that all human beings are generally good, rational, moral people, and if we're properly educated, then there's no limit to the goodness that we can produce when we put our minds to it, when we put our hearts to it. And yet when he entered into the prison camp surrounded by fellow Americans and Europeans, all just like him, they look like him, they're educated like he is, they're seemingly very rational people, in the midst of the compound, he witnessed something that shook him to his core because everybody started to steal from one another. Everybody started to double-cross and backstab and betray each other. They got in fights with one another over the smallest little things, morsels of food, silverware, things that in the, in the real world wouldn't seem to make any difference at all. But they became to him like savages. And his assumption was that when, when we are put in a difficult situation, we're going to bind together and we're going to show each other what true humanity really looks like. We're going to overcome our circumstances. But in the midst of the prison compound, these seemingly good and educated men turned on each other, lied to each other, and became something that Gilkey didn't think possible. It turned out the exact opposite of what he thought humanity to be. 
On one occasion, he was made the, uh, the overseer of the housing in the complex. And he saw one day a really easy problem to solve, he thought. There were in one bunkhouse 11 men, and next door in the next bunkhouse there were nine men. Eleven was too many, nine was too few, and so he cracked this, this very simple plan. There's an inequality here. I'm going to take one of the eleven and put him with the nine so that we have a balance of ten and ten, right? Anybody could see that there's inequality and that there's a need for justice here. But when Langdon Gilkey went to the bunkhouse of nine men to tell them the plan, they rejected it. They said, we're stuffed in here enough already as it is. We're not going to take on anybody else. If they've got too many next door, that's their problem, right? They can deal with that themselves. And he couldn't fathom the selfishness of that decision. And when he pushed them on it and called out their selfishness, they threatened to kill him. They said, this will be the end of you. And he went home that night from that meeting so disillusioned until the thought occurred to him, why should I expect anybody to be unselfish? Why, why should anybody go out of their way to sacrifice of themselves if they don't get a return benefit in its place? Why would anybody really have a motivation to do that? And Gilkey came to the realization through this experience that only a higher value beyond human reason and rationale could produce that kind of sacrificial love. And for him, ultimately, he came to realize that only a good and loving God could produce the kind of person that would rise above the mess of human nature when the chips were stacked against us. Only God could produce the kind of person who would love like Gilkey thought we should love. And he became a Christian. This is Peter's message. This is what Peter's trying to tell us right here. Where does sincere love, where does fervent love come from? It does not come from within the human will. It does not come through better education or better technology or more social reform. It comes from a new birth. You have been born again, Peter says. You're not just an emotional animal destined to die and be forgotten. You're not just perishable seed. You have an imperishable reality now. You are a child of the living God, and His eternal love has been manifested in you. You are the recipient of the greatest form of love that, that could ever exist. That's what makes us capable of this kind of love. It's because we've received this kind of love already from our Heavenly Father. Paul in Romans 5 says it like this, God demonstrates His own love toward you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. God doesn't pick out His favorites and only love those who he likes. God doesn't only love you if you're willing to love him back and earn his affections in return. It's not how he loves. God loves, in a sense, indiscriminately. Jesus in Luke said, God is kind even to evil and ungrateful people. God loves you, period, regardless of what you can do for him. And that's the kind of love that saves us. And that's the kind of love that makes us loving. True, sincere, fervent love, not grit your teeth and try hard kind of love, but a love that now, because I've received it, I can funnel it. This is who I am. This is who you are. Uh, you have a new heart and a new birth. That's where this godly love comes from. 
And that's why Peter says at the, the end of the chapter here, what we just read, he says, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Uh, all people and all of our glories, Peter says, are temporary. He's quoting from the Old Testament here to say we are temporary. You and I are perishable, right? And all of our glories are temporary. No matter what human beings at our very best, even our glory is fleeting. Solomon in all his splendor, David in all his splendor, the kings of Babylon, the pharaohs of Egypt in all their glory, they died. They were entombed. They were, for, for the most part, forgotten. We moved on, right? That's life. Their wealth changed hands. People today who are something will one day be nothing as it regards this, this physical existence that we all share, right? The flower falls off. It's gone. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now, that's not just a statement about the Bible in general, although that's true. When, when Peter says the word of the Lord endures forever, he's speaking specifically of the word of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of the, the death and resurrection of our Savior that endures forever. That is the, the imperishable seed that has caused you to be born again. He says it's the living and enduring word of God. Your salvation came from hearing about Jesus and receiving faith you trusted him for your salvation, and that is the seed which has made you new. And that seed, Peter says, endures forever. That means that your life, your decisions, your love endures. What we do on this earth matters beyond this life. That living and enduring word has taken root in us. And so you are now imperishable. You now live and endure just as God's word does because the seed is in you forever. We are not a group of people. Uh, we're not a social club. And we're just trying hard to love each other. We're trying to capture that Olympic spirit where we can all get along and, and love each other, right? That's, that's not how we're defined in the Bible. We are people who have the perfect love of God given to us, operating within us, and therefore we're able to love beyond ourselves, beyond our comforts, beyond our limits, beyond our circumstances, beyond our preferences, we're able to love truly, sincerely, and fervently. It's the kind of love that can only come from God. That's the uniqueness of the Christian love, of the love that the church shares together. That's who we are, and that's what we're called to be. I shared part of Langdon Gilkey's story a minute ago, but I saved the best part for the last little uh, minute of our sermon here. The best part of the story, that in the prison camp, Gilkey did meet one person who actually exemplified the kind of humanity and dignity and love that Gilkey assumed everybody should have. One person actually lived it out, and it was a man named Eric Little. Uh, Eric Little was captured while living as a missionary in China. He was put in the camp, and he was actually quite famous. He had won a gold medal in track and field for Great Britain. Uh, Eric had a movie uh, in recent years made about him called Chariots of Fire, a great movie if you've never seen it. That movie was made about Eric. 
Well, he actually went to the prison camp and died there. He died before the prisoners could be released at the end of the war. But while he was there, Gilkey witnessed Eric Little sacrifice constantly beyond his means so that others might be blessed and cared for. He would go without food. He would go without his basic needs being met if it meant caring for people other than him that he could do good for. If they were taken care of, even at the cost of his own well-being, he consistently modeled that kind of life. Toward the end of the war, Winston Churchill negotiated a prisoner release for Eric Little, thinking that one of Britain's great heroes, one of their great champions, the gold medal winner, can be released and come home. What a story that will be. What a, what a boost to British morale that would be. And Eric Little denied his release and instead gave it to a pregnant woman so that she and her unborn child might be set free and saved. And Gilkey wrote about Eric Little that he was the closest thing to a saint that he had ever seen in this life. And the difference for him was not that he was more moral or even more religious than everybody else. The difference is that Eric Little had been overwhelmed by the gracious love of Jesus. And it became for him a conduit, a funnel, that the love he received was the love that he poured out. That's the kind of love that a love song can't capture. That's why we exaggerate. I'll climb a mountain for you. We have to exaggerate what we assume the highest love to be, when in reality, Peter tells us what it is. Every single Christian is capable of this. This may feel like, like a, a tremendous burden. I can't love like that. You can. By faith in Jesus Christ, if you've been born again, you can love sincerely and fervently. But it requires for us a deep, deep uh, devotion not to each other first, but to Christ first. If I will love Christ as he has loved me, then Scripture tells us, just as I have loved you, Jesus says, so you love one another. This is possible. But we've got to pray that God would produce this in our hearts. So we ask you, Lord Jesus, in these moments, oh, Father, we do not have this in us by our nature. Um, we, in our nature, Lord, we are, um, we just, we, we've got selfishness in us. You know, it's, I know my own heart that I, I only want to love people who I know will love me back. And Father, that you, you've called us to such a richer, deeper, and more wonderful life than that. You've called us to actually reflect the heart of Jesus. He died on the cross for people who he knew would never love him. People who spit on him as he lay dying. He loved them to the end. And Father, that kind of love is not, it's not possible for us unless we've received it and it now operates within us. And so, Father, I pray that we would recognize the new birth that we receive by faith, that we receive as a gift, Lord, not a love that we can ever pay back, not a love that we'll ever deserve. Thank you for Jesus Christ, for what he poured out on our behalf. And Father God, would you, would you give us, as just a baseline for life, an assumption of sincere love for each other? This is just what it means to be a Christian. We are going to love each other without masks, without wax. We're going to love each other uh, in true and real, sincere ways. We're going to care about each other. When one of us suffers, we all suffer. When, we, when one rejoices, we all rejoice. Father, make that true of Harvest Church. 
And then beyond that, Father, call us to a fervent love, a love that pushes our limits, a love that, that maybe even hurts at times. But it's so worth it to reflect Jesus to each other and to the watching world. Father, thank you that, that um, you did not wait around for us to extend your love at the highest uh, level. You gave everything for us. And Lord, I pray, that, that for, I pray for me and for my brothers and sisters in this room that, Lord, we wouldn't just be thankful, we wouldn't just be inspired by your, by your example, but, Lord, that we would, we would sincerely ask of you, Father, make this love to operate in my own heart. Father, make this love to operate in me beyond convenience and preference. Make me truly loving like my Savior is loving. Father, if, if we could get this one thing right, <laughs> um, there's no limit, Father, um, to the change that would happen within this room and beyond. I believe that. And so, Father, make this a great, deep heart priority for us today. In Jesus' name, amen.